Scripture with you. That's okay. We have some extra Bibles laying around at the end of the rows. And you can use one of those. We are continuing on in Acts today, in Acts chapter 9. If you don't know where that is, it's towards the back of your Bible. And you can look in the table of contents at the very front. Tim Chilton just gave a testimony regarding how our church is responding to God's call of mission. And this text in Acts today provides a lot of the why to his what and how. Right? He gave you a very practical expression. And if you're wondering here, why in the world would someone sell their house, move a family of six from Raleigh across the world? This text is one of those texts that explains this. And we're happy to be here together today. In the 1940s, there was a people group, a tribe of people called the Gideo people of South Central Ethiopia, and they were half a million strong. People were coffee growers, thriving, and they had a worldview that owned a god called Mangano. Uh, but to them, Mangano was very far off. He was the creator, he was all present, but he was very far off and very hard to know, so they didn't relate to him that often, but they did relate to someone else. It was an evil spirit that they called Shichen. So they spent most of their time trying to appease this evil spirit, trying to please him, trying to sacrifice to him, and very little time trying to know this God that had, had come across as being a creator, but a little bit far off. There was one man, however, in the tribe. This guy's name was Marasa. Marasa was a devout man, and he decided, you know, even though this God is far off, I'm going to plead with him to reveal more of himself to us so that he would come closer, come near to us. And so he prayed, and after he prayed, he received a vision. And in the vision, someone told him, you know what, there's going to be two white-skinned dudes that come, and they're going to set up shop, and it's going to be weird. They're going to have funny-looking houses, and they're going to be right outside your tribe, and you just need to wait for these people, because through them I'll reveal myself, said Mangano. Imagine this guy's blown away, so he's going to wait, right? He waits for eight years until finally, one day, Two Canadian missionaries actually enter Ethiopia, and their plan is to start a mission within this tribe in the very center of their territory, but the government doesn't let them, and uh, the government makes these missionaries settle right on the outskirts of the tribe, which is right by Marasa's house. So these guys come in with the gospel, and not long after Marasa engages them, 30 years later there are 200 Christian churches among this people group. It's phenomenal. One great thing about our triune God is the sheer scope of His power. He touches here, He touches there. There's nothing that's safe from this suction that God has that will draw people to Himself. And this matters on a couple of levels. On a broad level today, I want to assure you that wherever you are in your journey, God's victory over sickness, over death, over sin, over Satan is all-encompassing. And you can trust in it. He's big enough to trust. So get a vision in the text today of a huge God. Big enough to hand your problems to. 
right? Big enough to win your victories. And I know some of us are tempted to think, my life is so messed up, so screwed up, that God cannot rescue me. But this text says otherwise. Marasa knows otherwise. Some of us are tempted to think, and we're right, we are victims in a sense. There are others oppressing us in such a way that we feel there will be no relief. This text says otherwise. The vast power of God does not victimize, it liberates, it frees, and it protects in the name of Jesus Christ in a deep, fulfilling way. God's love is deep enough. And others of us have friends, family members who continue to reject God, like the Gideo people who went more after an evil spirit than the true God that turned out to be Yahweh. Our friends begin to define what it means to be a rebel against the true God. And they keep walking away and they keep walking away. And we give the gospel to our family members and they continue to reject. I want you to take heart that God in Christ has a plan to include ones, some people from all peoples. And He's big enough to overcome evil hearts. He's done it time and time again in the book of Acts. He'll do it again today. Do we have hope? Where do we have hope as victims? Where do we have hope as people in messed up lives? It's not from within ourselves. Hear me clearly. We're not asking you to find the hope in here. The hope comes from outside of yourself. Here in the Word of God. A man named Oscar Wilde once said, You know, if we're honest, we're all in the gutter. The only difference is, some of us are gazing up at the stars. And what I want us to do today to do some stargazing from the Scriptures. Let's look at something bigger than ourselves and rest in that. So here's the first point. I'm going to start in verse 32 of Acts 9. I'm going to cover a lot of text today, so I'm going to fly through it, but hopefully we can uh, make some progress here. First point is Christ's power runs deep in the church. We see that here in the text. So as we continue to walk through Acts today, we're going to begin here in 9. We're going to pick up on a conversation in verse uh, 34 here. God's man Peter is in conversation with a guy named Aeneas. Now recall at this time what Peter was up to. He's an apostle. He's the leader of the church. And he'd been commissioned by God to take the gospel from Jerusalem outside of Jerusalem. And so he finds himself preaching in major thoroughfares throughout the kingdom. And now here he is in a crossroads town of Lydda. It's a pretty big city, important in the kingdom. And he's there and he's preaching. It's not far from the coast. And as he was preaching, he meets the guy. He comes across a guy named Ananias. And the meeting was strange because Ananias was paralyzed. been bedridden for eight years. And so this was an abnormal meeting. We pick up on the conversation here in verse 34 of chapter 9. Look what Peter says. He meets the guy. Apparently they've been talking. And he goes for it in verse 34 and says, Ananias, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Now, kids, this isn't like your parents saying make your bed. He's saying, get up and prove that you are healed. And what happens immediately... He rises, and all the residents of Lydda and Shen, which was the region, they saw him and they turned to the Lord. Now this should amaze us that the writer of this book puts this little story in the Bible for you. 
to be comforted. You're comforted because Jesus has already died at this point. He's resurrected and He's gone away to be with the Father, but yet His power is still in the church. It runs deep. Peter was an apostle. He's a leader. He's a representative of God's church. And so His power is still on display here. It should be very encouraging. And also, it's not just the physical power, but the power to turn, turn hearts. Hopefully you saw there what happened as a response to this, this healing. Hearts were turned to the Lord, we are told. So we're supposed to have comfort here from this story. And very, very immediately following that, there's another short story. Happens. Uh, we'll pick it up in verse 39. Not far from Lida, there's another town on the coast called Joppa. And the people in Joppa heard about this amazing healing in Lida, so we said, we need to get this guy over here. So they called Peter to come over to Joppa. And in Joppa resides a good woman. She's following Christ with good works. Her name is Dorcas. But she's also, like Anais was, physically suffering. And her illness persists so intensely that she dies. Her friends were understandably grieved. In verse 39, we see what happens. So Peter rose and he went with them. And when he arrived, he took, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, that's her name in Hebrew, Arise! And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand, raised her up, and then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. This is more of the same, right? Two stories back to back in the narrative that are very similar. And they're meant to say that God's power is still working among His people. Peter is there. It's amazing, phenomenal resuscitation power. The same type of power that we saw earlier in the Scripture with Elijah and Elisha and Jesus Christ Himself. These stories should sound familiar because it's the same God who's working then and He's working here today. It gives me a lot of hope. There's two explicit victories here. There's the physical win, right? God can heal sickness and even the dead. That proves He's rules over life. And that frees us up, not for ruin, but for risk. Because God can overcome sickness and death. But there's the other victory here over guilt, and it's even greater. Christ, by His death, has purchased a people. And when He shows Himself off and people come to Him, He absolves their guilt. Because the wrath of God is placed upon Jesus. That's why we see people believing and churning. Great victory here as far as the curse is found. So application for you today are going to be in the form of questions. As you read through a text like this, you need to wrestle with some questions when you go home. Here's one. Christ's power runs deep in the church. But as for yourself, ask this. When... In my life, do I tend to doubt this? When do I tend to doubt Christ's power as given through the church? That's a question for you to answer. The Bible's not going to answer that for you. Go home and talk about this with your spouse, with your small group. When do I tend to doubt these things? Because that idea doesn't come from Scripture. Where does it come from in your life? What influences are making you doubt the power of Christ 
in the church. As we go through the story, you'll notice that these two are very phenomenal things. Think about it. You've got a guy paralyzed for eight years. Now he's walking around. You've got a woman who's dead. Now she's alive. You would think these two pieces of the story would be the main point of what Luke has to tell us. But it's actually not. It's actually just a smidgen of what this text involves. We come up on the largest big story in the whole book of Acts. And just a little bit of it is about this phenomenal power. So we're going to spend most of our time on Luke's next point. His next point, we've talked about how deep the power of God is in Christ. The next point is Christ's victory runs wide to all peoples. It's very wide in scope. It's important for our story here to see where Peter ends up after he heals Dorcas in Joppa. You can see that in verse uh, 43 if you read it. He stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Why is that important? Well, think about what Simon did as a tanner. He worked with animal hides. If you're a hunter, you know this is going to be messy business. It's nice that he's by the coast because the ocean breeze can help with this stuff. But it's a bloody, gory occupation. So much so that Peter, as a Jew, would have a hard time staying with this guy because he was considered unclean because he's working in all of these animal skins. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but this is the first hint at where God is going in the story. Peter is forced to stay with a guy he would never stay with at this tanner's house. Um, And while he's buying his time there in Joppa, the story moves now about a day's horse ride north up the coast to another city called Caesarea. Remember what's happening. The gospel is now beginning to touch different cities. And we can pick up the rest of the story here in verse 2 of chapter 10, if you're following along. Because here, there lives a unique Roman soldier. Verse 2, a devout man who feared God with all of his household lived there. He gave alms generously to the people and he prayed continually to God. So what do we know about this guy? Well, we know his name is Cornelius. That name was given to many people who were freed from slavery because there was a famous slave named Cornelius who was freed. And this guy could have been a freed man. He was working as an officer and centurion. means he had a, a big regiment within the Roman government. Uh, He was socially uh, adept and respected. He was well paid. And apparently he had come in contact with the Jewish people and was sympathetic to what they were doing, but yet he hadn't become a Jew. So he feared God a little bit, but he hadn't dove into Judaism and totally converted. What's extremely important here is that even though he fears God, He hasn't been converted. He is not saved yet. He hasn't heard the gospel. So he's in this state of fearing God, but not really knowing what's going on. So God, like He always does with conversion, He initiates things. And you see that in 10.3. About the ninth hour of the day, we, we saw... He, Cornelius, saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and he says to him, Cornelius! And he stared at him in terror. Said, what is it, Lord? Remember, this, this guy's just, he's just out there. He's trying to, trying to live a good life and he, he loves God, doesn't know who he is exactly. What is it, Lord? Your prayers and your alms, that's gifts, have ascended at the memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner. Don't get confused. There's Peter, then there's the tanner. You can find him by the sea, so says the voice. So 
Cornelius, a man of power, he grabs his boys and he sends them. Go, go, ah, I don't know what happened. Just go fetch this guy. And so they go. And before we move on with the story, we need to realize that you probably know plenty of Corneliuses in your life. Think about his situation. Because our entire context here in the southern part of the United States is filled with guys like this who know a little bit about God, but don't truly know Jesus Christ and who He is. Case in point, uh, when I lived downtown, I had a neighbor, and when I would get up and I would, I would walk to work every day, uh, the guy would be on his porch and he would always yell things to me and he might say, um, Have a blessed day! I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I will. I'll try. And then I'll come home and he'd be on his porch and he might say, God is good! All the time. I'd be like, yeah, man, this guy's rocking. I'm so, you know, the more I got to know him, I, I, I sat over there and I sat, decided to sit down, sit down with him and having conversation. And I started asking him about Jesus and his relationship to Jesus. And to this guy, he heard the name of Jesus, but he didn't know him. He had no category for Jesus' sacrificial death, Jesus' divine nature, uh, being led by the Spirit, given by Jesus. On and on, I kept asking him, and it was as if by living in this culture, he just caught tidbits. I think grandma was a member of a church, and so growing up, he caught these phrases, but he didn't know the substance of who Jesus was. Still needed Jesus, and we have to keep that on the forefront of our thoughts. No matter how people present themselves and talk, there's still a deep need for people to be converted. Remember what Jesus said. He never said that the harvest was sparse, right? He said the laborers are few. We have to keep that in mind. But back to the story here. Back in Joppa, Peter gets his own word from God. So don't get confused. Caesarea, God comes up on the coast to Cornelius. Down lower on the coast, geographically, God is now coming to Peter. It's mealtime, but Peter's been hard at work praying in those days, and still in that part of the country. A lot of the rooftops were flat, not like mine, which is this huge angle pitch, but they're flat. It's a great place to go up during the day and pray. So Peter was showing up on top of the house, praying, hard at work, and he's hungry, and so people are going to fix him something to eat. But while he's waiting, he has a vision. And you can read in verse 11 about the vision of chapter 10. And Peter saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet is descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And inside of it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him. The voice said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Verse 15. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. What in the world is going on here? Well, first, remember, he's hungry. So God has chosen to speak to him in something very important in his culture and at his heart at this time. He's going to use food. Right? And so, in the vision, Peter sees all sorts of animals. Some that would have been alright to eat for a Jew. Some that would not have been alright. But God is saying, you can go kill any of them and you can now eat them. So that's why he's shocked. Because in the Torah, in Leviticus 11, God had clearly outlined 
that some animals were clean to eat and some weren't. Now, this is a new concept to us probably, that if, oh, what's it mean to be clean and not clean? I'm not sure. Simply, God wanted His people to be clean during the rituals that they were to perform before Him. This cleanliness, so to speak, would have a couple of functions. First, He declared some animals clean and some animals not clean. Clean ones you could use. Animals that weren't clean, don't touch them. They're common, don't touch them. So there's two reasons why He did this. First, if you have a distinction while you're doing some physical ritualistic act, it can remind you of your heart. So this ritual cleanliness that the Jews had to deal with on a daily basis was to remind them that some moral things, some ethical things, were impure for them to do. Adultery, lying, stealing. All the cleanliness in the rituals reminded them of that. Secondly, it helped, important for this story, to have cleanliness, unclean things that separated God and His people from all of the other nations. You might remember the story of Daniel in the Bible when, when he's taken in. Uh, the pagan king asked him to eat all kinds of food. And Daniel's like, no, I'm, I'm only going to eat my food, my clean food, because I'm separate from you guys. So it was a helpful way of reminding God's people that they were a chosen people, that they were set apart from the nations. Yet here comes God in this vision saying, ah, you can eat it all. You can eat all of this. So Peter's shocked. And and Jesus says, come on, grab this grub and go. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. Reminiscent of the cross story, it takes three times. Right? Remember how Peter denied Jesus three times? Jesus is talking to him here in the vision. It takes three times to convince him he's nothing if not stubborn. But for a good reason here, right? He's trying to be biblical. So what did the whole vision mean? Well, the vision is about much more than food. Peter understands the vision to be about the broadening of the people of God to include all ethnic groups, all people groups, not just the Jews. People that were previously considered unclean. And we know Peter understands the vision pertaining to people and not just food because of what he says in verse 28. You can read that with me. He's talking to some Gentiles here. He says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone from another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean, right? This this vision wasn't just about creatures and food. It was about people so that now Peter can say, I'm not going to call any person unclean. The time has come with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ under the new covenant that such dietary laws were no longer needed to define God's people as separate from the Gentiles. Indeed, God's people now included both Jews and the Gentiles. So we are to see all of these covenantal rituals from the Old Testament, all the ceremonies, all the festivals, circumcision, all of these things have been fulfilled in Christ and they've served their usefulness. That's why in Colossians 2, 16, Paul can write to a largely Gentile church, Paul writes, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs where? To Christ, right? That's one reason why here at TCC we don't keep the Feast of Trumpets. You know, we don't follow those ceremonies because they've uh, outlived their usefulness for us as Gentiles, the people of God. Now, back to Peter. After his vision, Peter is visited now from Cornelius' peeps. Remember, Cornelius sent his guys down 
Peter has this vision and then the people arrive and they beckon him to Caesarea. Verse 24. Read it with me. On the following day, they entered Caesarea. So now they've gone to Caesarea. Peter and Cornelius, his people. Cornelius was expecting them and he called together all of his relatives and his close friends. So they're going to have some preaching here, right? He's called together a worship service of sorts. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and Cornelius falls down at his feet and starts worshiping Peter. Remember, this is proof that he's not truly following Christ. He's worshiping Peter. But Peter lifts the guy up and says, Stand up. I'm, I'm, I'm also a man just like you. And as he talked to him, Peter went in and found many people gathered together. So Cornelius seemed to hold to that Greco-Roman view that there were some divine men walking around among people here with us. Um, people who were immortal gods that came down. Very common view. and uh, He seemed to have that in, in his uh, worldview. But nonetheless, Peter, Peter pushes it away. And he, as he enters the building, Cornelius explains that four days ago... I had a vision from God and I was told to get you and now I've got you. And Peter's response is to summarize his own vision in the words of verse 34. He says, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. What does he mean, God shows no partiality? Well, it's his way of saying, all of us here, no matter what our ethnicity, Jews, Gentiles, we're all responsible to God for our evil. That's what he's saying there. He shows no favor when it comes to demanding repentance. Yes, he chose a people to be his own, but he demands that everyone repent. He's showing no partiality there. And likewise, people from all nations can come to God. That's what he means about being acceptable to God. He mentions fearing God and doing what is right. What he's not saying, to be clear, is that if you fear God, you can self-righteous your way to heaven. You can justify yourself. You can pick yourself up by your bootstraps if you just fear God, and you can make it to Him. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying when he's saying acceptable to God is quite the opposite. That Cornelius is striving for God, has led God to show Cornelius his need for repentance. And it's free got up, in a sense, to come and reveal himself more to this seeker. And he's not saying that if you just fear God, then you can win your own salvation. He's saying, no, if you do that, you're going to end up knowing just how much you need this true living God. Verse 38. Peter breaks into a little freestyle type of gospel summary here. See what he says. Verse 38. Starts preaching. How God anointed Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit, with power. He went about doing good, talking about Jesus, and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with Him. And we are witnesses of all that He did both in the country of the Jews and Jerusalem. And they put Him to death by hanging Him on a tree. But God raised Him on the third day and made Him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. And He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To Him all the prophets bear witness that 
but everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sin through His name. You see, most of the major components of the Gospel here, and I'm sure we don't have a record of the entire sermon, but you see a heavy affirmation of the Trinity here. Verse 38, God is doing the the anointing, Jesus and appointing, Jesus is doing the saving work, and the Spirit is empowering here. Also, Jesus' death is mentioned and His resurrection and also His appearances after that prove the resurrection. Jesus' right to judge sinners comes up here in the text and emphasized along with an offer of forgiveness of sin for everyone, not just as Jews, everyone who believes on Him can receive this offer of forgiveness. And so at this point in the story, I just want to step back a minute and talk to anybody here who's a guest and may not be a Christian. We often welcome people, family members, guests that aren't believers, and we're so glad that you're here. I just want to say that this message that Peter just preached, it not only explains us as Christians, but it defines us as this promise that anyone who comes to Jesus will be saved from God's coming punishment. Anyone who comes can be forgiven of their sins. We have to all admit we've messed up, right? That's all that Peter is saying. If we come and we admit and we trust Jesus Christ, He will bring you in to God's people. And so if you're new here, if you're just visiting, I encourage you to read through this again. Ask somebody about it. Many people in this room will be willing to talk to you about your question. The good news here is that Jesus... The good news of Jesus is not just a declaration, it's also an invitation. This is not just a declaration, it's an invitation for all of us to trust in Him. Now, as Peter's speaking, God shows up in a really cool way. Look what happens. This is why you should never fall asleep during sermons. Verse 44, look what happens. Peter is preaching. While he's saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the Word. Don't know what that feels like. Really, but people saw it and they heard it and they felt it. The Spirit of God came down. And the believers from among the the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even among the Gentiles. God washes over the place. Now imagine the scene in your head. Remember, Peter came with some friends of his, some circumcised, devout Jewish people who become Christians. When they walk in the door, it's hard enough to just get them into a Gentile house in the first place. They're walking in. They're probably staying on the other side of the room from all of Cornelius' people. All the Gentiles are over here. All the Jews are probably over here. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God falls down. I could just imagine the Jewish guys saying, what just happened? That's our stuff. That happened to us at Pentecost. This only happens to God's covenant people. And the Scripture says they were amazed. I bet they were. They didn't know what to think. What in the world is our God? Is He now the God of everybody? I thought we had a special thing going here. It's amazing the scope of God's love here for His people. And they're thinking, these guys don't keep the Passover. They're not circumcised. I went through circumcised for a reason, right? They're not even that. How can God open up His arms this wide? But they shouldn't have been so surprised. Because long ago in Genesis 12... God came to Abraham and He said, I'm going to bless all families through you and the Jewish people. And in Psalm 67, the psalmist said, Let the peoples praise you, O God, 
This is a song that they would sing. Let all the peoples praise you. I don't know what they were thinking as they were singing that song, but they weren't thinking, let's include everybody. But God was thinking. He had a plan. Let the nations be glad and rejoice. Sing for God. For you judge the peoples with equity, and you guide the nations upon the earth. The prophet Jonah, remember, was sent against his will to the city of Nineveh that was nothing but pagans. He fought against it. Why? Because he knew God was going to offer them repentance. They should have known. Because Jesus Himself in Acts 1.8 said, I'm going to send you to the ends of the earth. And that was to gather all of His people. And then Peter ices the deal here by baptizing these Gentiles into what was up to this point largely a Jewish Church was it, It's hard for us to think that way because we are today largely, in our context, a Gentile church. But think oppositely, and it was just really incredibly weird. But Peter said, no reason why these people shouldn't be baptized. they got the Spirit now. What are you, what are you going to argue against? And so these people are included in a phenomenal way. And so this, this fulfillment of all these Old Testament promises is why... We as a church are sending families like the Chiltons to go. We are now participating in this inclusion of all of the Gentiles. We're banking on the promises of God that He's going to make good on His Word, right? And so we're not going to just stay here. We're going to push people out. And so the rest of the story here uh, is in regards to a debriefing. Uh, remember, the church is, is largely Jewish, and so what's going to happen is the church, uh, the Jews hear about this, and they're like, well, this is crazy. Peter, get him in here. We've got to figure out what's going on. So Peter returns to Jerusalem, and he meets with an appropriately named group called the Circumcision Party. What do you think is going to be important to them, right? The Circumcision Party comes and they say, we've got a problem, Peter. They criticized him, according to the Scripture. You're letting the uncircumcised, the Gentile, into our thing. Probably wasn't the whole church, but specifically this little group had a problem. So Peter recaps his entire story. That's all that you're going to read there in chapter 11, 5 through 16. Go home and read it. It's a recap of everything that happened. For instance, uh, not for instance, by the way, the reason Luke recaps it, because that's the Bible-telling method of letting you know that it's important. You see something repeated in the Scriptures like that, and you're reading, you're like, oh, I just heard about this. He's repeating it, and he's spilling so much ink so that you will know it's important. Why is it important? It's important because this promise, this action, should push us as a church to involve all peoples in our vision plan. Not just about us, not just about Raleigh. God does love the city, and so do we. God's mission pushes us way beyond Raleigh. Verse 17, after the recap, Peter wraps it up. He's going to top off his account by saying this. If God then gave the same Spirit to them as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Really good question for you today. Who are you that you could stand in God's way. Or said otherwise, who are you to orient your life completely missing God's purposes for the nations? 
what Peter was saying. And it's possible for us to do that, right? You've got a job, you've got a family, you've got a life. You've got hobbies. We get that. But if you're leaving out some participation in the reigning in of all peoples, Peter might say, who are you to stand in God's way? Now, when they heard these things, they fell silent. What are they going to say? They glorified God. That's what they said. And then they said, well, then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance. That leads to life. You have to give the Jewish church credit here, right? As soon as they heard the full story, they didn't about face. said, ah, this is glorious. Maybe some of the promises started to click. Maybe they were impressed by his account of the Spirit's working. After all, people, when the, when the Spirit descended, people were speaking in different languages, just like Pentecost. But the grumbling ceased to be replaced by a gut-level glorification of God because the scope of His glory is so wide. A couple of applications here now for us. First, From this passage, we clearly see that God has a redemptive plan that's now being fulfilled throughout all of the church. Meaning all the blessings of Christ are no longer focused on the Jewish people. Instead, the Jewish people rejected Him for a season, and now these blessings have been thrown out to every nation, to every tribe, to every people. That's the main point here. So as a church, TCC has risen up and we're saying it's not enough just to evangelize people here. We want to take part in global church planting effort. We want to push forward with our time, with our people, some of our best people and some of our other people. We're going to push these people. Just kidding. We're just kidding. We're putting our best forward to reach the nations. That's what we're doing. There are currently 11 thousand ethnic groups who have no access to the gospel. Another number. That means there's 189 million people who have no access to the good news. There's a lot of work to be done among the Gentiles. And as staggering as these numbers are, the biggest number that I want you to remember is one. There's only one true living God who is not being worshipped by all of these people. One true living God whose fame is being shrouded by darkness because we are not proclaiming one true living God whose glory deserves to be seen by all of the nations. So how can we do this practically? Give me something I can use. Well, here we go. First, many of us can go. Last year we sent two family units to the field. This year we're sending two other family units to the field. And these aren't people who are super spiritual pastor folks. These are people with families and they're going because God called them to go. Some, some have gone, and I, my prayer is that many more could go and use their time and their energies and their gifting overseas. But we won't all go. In fact, most of us won't. So how can we help? Well, at TCC, a portion of our strategy goes like this. For those who are here, we are sending. This is one being sent. We are sending people. And as we're sending, we want to do two things well. 
two things that I want you to remember. The first one is encourage people. The second is to educate people. So get the picture. A big pot of us are sending a few to the nations. And as we're sending them, we want to educate them. And we want to encourage them. Well, how can we do that? Well, sometimes we send people on short-term trips to do it. But this summer we have a wonderful opportunity because three of our missionary worker families are coming back here. We now have close access to them. So while they're here, we want to encourage and educate them. What does that look like? Well, practically, how can we encourage them? We can take time to schedule a meal with them. Well, you're speaking words of faith. What that does is it increases their faith so they can continue well in the journey of bringing in more of these Gentile people. Ask them about their people group. Every worker loves that. Show an interest in that. It's very encouraging to them. Watch their kids so that they can have some time alone to be uh, reinvigorated in their faith and their relationship. Invite them to spend a night in your home. I know many of you people have done this. I heard from one of our workers who's traveling in very shortly and he said, hey, I'm going to be staying with X, Y, Z. And I was like, wow, that's great. That's showing hospitality that will encourage them, that will further their ability to plant churches among all people. Just hang out. Pursue a friendship with them. That will be encouraging because the Spirit is in you to encourage them so that they don't quit. They know we all can't go and they don't want to quit. So we want to encourage them. How can we educate them? That sounds weird. I just simply mean that we have the ability collectively to offer some type of training that they don't have access to on the field. You may not think about this, but it can be an isolated, somewhat lonely existence. They have friends. I'm not saying that. But they don't have access to all of the training that we might have. Some some. Fields, your vocation might have something called a CVE, Continual Vocational Education. You know, conferences, seminars, maybe your employer will pay once a year for a special speaker to come in and give a rah-rah speech, and it trains you up, right? It, it helps you in your job, and they don't have that. So how can we help? Well, maybe you're a homeschooler. You kind of take that for granted. That's no big deal. Well, these missionaries, they have to homeschool oftentimes. How about offering to come over and give them some advice, give them an assessment. Some of you are in public education. You have a working knowledge of what it means for a child to be educated. These missionary families don't necessarily have that. They can learn from you. Some of you have business savvy. At least one of our church planting teams that we have sent out has a business component. And the guy who's starting it is not a businessman. (laughs) They need some advice from people who have gained wisdom. You don't have to be an expert homeschooler, public educator, or business person, whatever it is you do. You don't have to be an expert. You just have to know enough to train them to get them from level A to level B. So there are lots of ways that you can practically not stand in God's way. You can individually, we're already corporately sending, but you as an individual can be involved in this great commission while not going. If you have any questions, just come and ask me. Uh, We'll put you to work. Second application, then we're done. At the heart of God's story today, this idea of showing Himself to all people, there was a subset of folks, you may have noticed in the story, who were absolutely amazed that God would send Himself and spend Himself for this certain group. Remember that? In other words, as they understood God in all of His majesty, 
and glory. They never in their wildest dreams thought that God would love these people. So they weren't loving these people. But here's my question. The application question is this. Who have you deemed unworthy of God's love through you? Who have you deemed unworthy of God's love through you? I remember when I was in junior high, I was playing in a uh, basketball tournament. And it's classic game. This is the way you draw it up. End of the game, five seconds left, I get fouled, and my team is down by one. And the other team called the timeout to, you know, ice me up. And I remember thinking in my head, I had better hit this get this shot, because if I don't, this guy, Jerry, is never going to let me live it down. Jerry was a classmate of mine. He was a bully. He was a tease. Just an all-around terrible dude. And in my moment of crisis in junior high, all I could think about was I better not mess up or this guy will let me have it. All through high school, this guy continually got on my nerves, showing up. Enormous leadership potential as a young man. I gathered a group of guys to go over to his house, bathe his house in eggs. We just, we just I'm not proud of that, but I'm saying that we, we didn't have a good relationship. I was going to church. I was trying to follow Jesus except for the eggs. And I thought, how is God letting him get away with it? I'm not showing him love because he's not honoring God, right? Even in college, this guy was a cur. He was a rebel. He was a drunkard. And I thought, I don't need to show him God's love because he's not honoring God. I don't need to waste my time on him. His mother would even come up to me at church on Sundays and say, Would you pray for him? And those were the shortest, most insincere 20-second prayers of my life. I didn't think he was worthy of God's love. Does that sound familiar to you? No? Well, let me help you dig. Look no further than your own family. Start there. Sat down with a sincere brother not too long ago. He looked me in the eye and he said, I'm I'm thinking about no longer speaking to my mom ever again. I'm like, oh man, that's that's kind of cold. What did she do? Well, it turns out, you did X to me. You hurt me, forgot me. Emotionally, anger at me. Just a mess. Or failed to give me what? Attention, affection, respect. Equal time as my sister, you know. Material things, you name it. They're just unlovely in God's eyes. They have to be. They're unclean. So why should I, God's hands and feet, stretch out to them? They're dirty. I don't want to get that grime on me, right? Maybe it's even in your own marriage. Because of what your spouse has repeatedly done, you're going to sh- or failed to do, you're going to shield them off, right? Deem them unworthy of God's love because they didn't do this or because they did do this. Instead of reflecting God's merciful union between Christ and the church, you're actually trying to reflect the justice of God on those whom He has not chosen. Maybe your obnoxious co-worker. I, I don't know, the jerk on your ball team. Think through it today. There's somebody that you have probably deemed unworthy of God's love. Who have you deemed unworthy of God's love? Who doesn't deserve God in your opinion? As you think through these applications, we're going to move towards the Lord's Supper today together. For it, it, It's here at the table... 
that we who have deemed others as unloving are met with an astounding reality, right? For the spread that our Father has given us to remember Him, it's not a feast. There's no steak here. There's no lobster. There's no vegetables cooked by a gourmet chef. Instead, what do we have? We have remembrances of a slaughter, a broken body, a cup stained like blood and bread broken to reveal how Christ was broken. The good feast doesn't come yet, my friend. Why? Why do we give this meal? Because truth be told, God Himself one day found you unworthy of His love. Right? And so He gave you Christ who had to be broken because of your own unworthiness. God accepted you fully. Well, remember that. Took the death of His Son to do it, but He has accepted you in Christ if you believe and repent. How dare we withhold this love from people that we find unworthy? Let's pray together. Father, impress upon our hearts the reality and the wideness, the scope of Your love and the crucial aspect of the mission of the church. Dare I say the central reason we exist is to get Your Gospel out to all of these people. 11,000 groups, that's almost overwhelming. And yet, You've given us a footprint already. Four different countries and we have two more coming up and we're so so happy to be a part of Your mission. And I just pray that we glory in it, that we creatively... Uh, Keep brainstorming on how we can be involved in all of this. How we can be better senders. Increase our faith there, God. And also, God, turn our hearts. There are those of us, myself included, who are still prone to forget what You have done for us in the Gospel of Jesus Christ as unworthy ones, changed by Your grace. We're prone to forget that. So I pray during this time, Let us remember who we were before Christ and then run to how You saved us and You empower us now and we're different people. You changed us. God, I pray that You help us continue to reach with the Gospel, with mercy, with justice, those people we deem unworthy. Because Your love, the scope of it is much bigger than we ever knew. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.